All right. So thank you all for joining us today. It's April 21st and welcome to the Vegetable Beat. This is a weekly live roundtable discussion during the growing season for vegetable producers across the Midwest and Great Lakes region. I'm your host, Natalie Hoydel from University of Minnesota and Mike Ranke from MSU is behind the scenes as our Zoom engineer. And today we're going to be talking all about alternatives to plastic mulch. So today I'm here with Steve Poppy and Nate Dahlman from the West Central Research and Outreach Center, which is one of the research stations affiliated with the University of Minnesota. They both have been working with alternatives to plastic mulch for years and have a lot of insight about different kind of alternative mulches as well as living row systems. So we're gonna be talking about some of the things that they've tried over the years um, and their experiences with different alternatives. So throughout the Throughout our discussion here, we're going to have about 20, 30 minutes of discussion with Nate and Steve with some questions we came up with ahead of time. Feel free to put questions in the Q&A box as we go, and then we'll have 20 to 30 minutes at the end where we can answer audience questions. Um, you can also leave them in Facebook comments if you're streaming on Facebook. Certified Crop Advisor credits are available, um, and if you're in Michigan, you can also get... Um, restricted use pesticide credits for pesticide applicators. So if you would like credits for either of those, put your name and email in the chat or in the Facebook comments. So with that, why don't we just start with an introduction from the two of you. Um, I'd love to hear just in general a little bit more about what you do and then what inspired your research program on alternatives to plastic mulch. Thank you, Natalie. I'll start out. I'm Steve Poppy, a horticulture scientist from the University of Minnesota West Central Research and Outreach Center. We are located in the West Central uh, uh, area of Minnesota. We're about 150 miles west, northwest of the uh, uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Uh, been at this experiment station for many, many years and have done a lot more work with fruits than, than vegetables, but, uh, uh, and so my talk will be related to strawberries, but certainly can apply to vegetables as we talk about biodegradable mulches. Um, and go ahead, Nate, I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, so my name is Nate Dolman. Uh, I've been in my current position here for um, three years now, um, but I've been off and on working with horticultural crops for the last um, 10 years. And I've also done some work with uh, more corn and soybean and uh, crops like that um, with cover cropping and more alternative growing methods as well. And usually our hosts are from two different institutions, but the two of you work together and just have a little bit different perspectives on the work that you do, right? Correct. Well, I will start out there. Yeah, do you want to give some background on your alternative mulch research? Yes, uh, back in uh, 2017 and 2018, we had a project, two-year project, that was called developing an annual day neutral strawberry system and using biodegradable mulches. Okay. And uh, we know, you know, farmers need an environmentally acceptable system, you know, for producing strawberries or vegetables to increase the value of, you know, their crops. And uh, so with our system, we use plastic mulch. Uh, we started the system back in 2013 and landscape fabric, which is uh, for in between the rows weed control worked great. It was uh, an important part of our initial system back in the 2013 through 2016, but uh, it was great for weed control, but uh, a challenge in strawberry production. 
So in, back in 2016, we took a survey of some of these concerns with 200 regional farmers in the state of Minnesota, and 73% of them wanted to learn more about growing annual strawberries, and 64% wanted to learn more about our uh, low tunnel system. But however, about 60% of these farmers surveyed, they had real concerns about our system use of plastic mulch and landscape fabric, including the negative environmental effects and lack of recycling options. So therefore to increase our local strawberry production system and meet the needs of farmers, uh, we started to explore the performance of biodegradable mulches uh, and that was our next step. So this concern led to our 2017-2018 project uh, evaluating the effectiveness of biodegradable mulch in a low tunnel strawberry system. Um, and to further reduce plastic in, in the system, we evaluated the use of cover crops in the place of the landscape fabric for weed suppression between the rows of strawberry plants. And I'll let Nate talk about that. Um, and we were uh, comparing these biodegradable mulches as compared to standard white on black plastic mulch, which is a synthetic product. It's not cleared for use in organic systems. You can use it in organic systems, but it has to be removed at the end of the growing season. So I'll share some of those results briefly. Uh, so what we did was we compared two within row treatments in the strawberry rows, uh, the white on black plastic, which I just talked about. White is on the outside, black is on the underside. Uh, that product is probably many of you have used. Uh, works great. Uh, it inhibits weed seed germination because of the, the black plastic on the underside and the white reflects light in uh, back onto the plant, which is very beneficial. And on a low tunnel system, it, um, it uh, keeps the temperatures down too. It keeps the plants cool. Um, so again, comparing two within row treatments, white and black plastic and biodegradable plastic. And then we did two strawberry varieties. <clears throat> With our system, we looked at yield, we looked at uh, uh, per plant, uh, number of pounds per plant, we looked at yield pounds per acre, and we looked at individual berry weight. And on looking at the biodegradable plastic, okay, and I should probably explain a little bit more, the biodegradable plastic was called a Bio 360, okay? It's a biodegradable, compostable, black mulch film, okay? As stated from the manufacturer's website, uh, Bio360 is made of Matter Buy. It's a registered trademark name, a plastic that is completely biodegradable and compostable and used in the manufacturing of products having a low impact on the environment. The temperature, the humidity, and microorganisms in the ground transform Bio360 into water, carbon dioxide, and biomass. Okay, and they're are supposedly no toxic residues left. Um, Can I just ask a quick question about it? Sure. Um, I know they're kind of trending more and more towards less petroleum based or less petroleum used in those products, but that product that you were working with still was, was it predominantly petroleum based or do you know the makeup of it? It was predominantly cornstarch. Now it was, okay. Yes, it wasn't petroleum based. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. Um, so we looked at yield uh, and uh, an individual berry weight and looking at two different varieties. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the white on black plastic had higher pounds per plant. The white on black plastic had more pounds per acre. These are all significant, by the way. 
and the berry weight had larger individual berry weight, the white on black plastic as compared to the biodegradable plastic. Okay, again, this was our first time using this product. It worked, we use a plastic mulch machine, which uh, by and large, it worked quite well with this product. It made a nice tight fit. Um, but in towards the end of the season, the biodegradable plastic started to, of course, break down and it was along the edges, okay? And so in strawberry production or any type of vegetable production, if you have rain or irrigation, it tends to splash that black soil that's in between the rows back onto the fruit or the vegetables, which uh, was a bad deal, you know? And so that was one of the, the bad points of the, when it was starting to break down. But again, as I shared, uh, the yields were significantly less with the biodegradable. We also, as one of the original treatments, we were going to use paper mulch. And that is, we were using a product that is approved for organic production, okay? Um, we were confident when we first started out that that paper mulch would work well when installed with a plastic mulch machine. But we tried to install this product with the machine in the spring of 2019, but failed. Uh, during the installation process, the product continually ripped. I just <laughs> was pulling my hair out, trying to adjust the machine so the, the paper mulch would work, and uh, but with no success. So unfortunately, we had to abandon the paper mulch treatment. I know we've learned a lot since then. We're going forward with two other experiments this year with the paper mulch. Nate has found a really good uh, uh uh, video YouTube on how to use it properly. We, hopefully we might be able to learn from that and uh, uh, be able to apply the, the uh, paper mulch this year. So um, with that, that's kind of where we were at. I will let Nate talk about the, our work with some of the, uh, the living mulches that we used in between the rows in some of our recent experiments. Yeah, before we move on to the living row covers, um, I wonder if I can just ask a couple kind of quick follow-up questions. Um, so you talked about the yield being lower and I'm curious if you have any more insight on that. If you think it had to do with like higher temperatures because of the black plastic or just because it was breaking down, you had that much more like pressure from or competition with weeds. What do you think was going on there that caused that discrepancy? Well, uh, Natalie, we did take uh, temperatures uh, we monitored uh, a temperature uh, that was uh, we were able to download and whatnot, where we had it about a uh, eight to twelve inch level right above the strawberry plants in the uh, low tunnel, and there wasn't a significant difference, you know, over the entire growing season of the black plastic sort of say being warmer. We were concerned about that; we thought it would be warmer, but overall there was no significant difference in temperatures comparing the two plastics. Um, I think the white on black plastic um, just is uniquely, you know, with the, uh, the, the light reflection and uh, the keeping the plants somewhat cool in that environment really have, uh, um, have worked well for us. Um, I know now that the white on black plastic is also available in a biodegradable form. So we haven't tried that yet. Um, so that's interesting were that uh, same product, but um, it, it just overall, it, it did surprise us that the yields were significantly different, but, uh, uh, but it did break down early. And uh, uh, for cleanliness of, of plants and strawberry fruit, uh, that was a bad point. And then 
Yeah, just one more follow-up about that breakdown process. Um, let me put a question in here. Um, people kind of have questions about how well biodegradable plastics actually degrade. Like it seems like during the season, they degrade more than you want them to. But then after the season is over, you often end up with like more fragments than you want. So I'm curious about your experience with just kind of your observations, but also anything you've learned about at the end of the season, ways that you're like working it in or anything you're doing to make sure that it's really well degraded by the following season. Right. Um, when we left it on the uh, plant roll, uh, we took the low tunnels off at the end of the season. We left it there for a considerable amount of time. It, it, it did break down, but uh, we were very concerned that it would not break down adequately. We were told that you could just chill it back into the soil and it would break down since it's made out of you know cornstarch and whatnot. Um, towards the end of the season, before freeze up, we actually removed the plastic, the biodegradable plastic from the field. You know, we did not work it back into the soil because of that concern. And then you composted it or did you just throw it away? What did you do with it? We just, we just threw it away. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. And I know when we were, when we first started this project, uh, we're at an experiment station that has livestock and they have uh, corn silage piles and whatnot that they cover with uh, plastic. And there was a company that uh, worked with us throughout the entire experiment station where we're, we're located. And they put a big bin there for us to throw all this uh, used plastic. Uh, and most of that plastic was used in uh, the covering of uh, corn silage piles. And uh, they, after a while, they rejected that all that plastic that we threw in there because it either had soil on it or it had still stuck to the underside of it, some corn silage. So they took that bin away. Uh, so that didn't work real well. All right. I can think of a lot more questions, but for the sake of time, let's move on and talk about some of your living uh, row cover trials, and then we can take more questions at the end. Um, so I'm seeing a lot more energy around living aisles with growers lately. And so I'm excited that you've been doing some of this work already. Um, so Nate, I'm curious if you can just give kind of an introduction about the different, I guess, the different crops and combinations that you've tried as living row covers and just, yeah, kind of an overview of what you've been looking at. Yeah. So a living row cover is um, something that, well, for our purposes, what we've used is just between the rows of our primary crop uh, instead of either just having landscape fabric or just uh, fallow soil. Um, so we had one project. Uh, and it involved using um, winter rye, winter canola, winter camelina, and then um, treated against fabric. Uh, we didn't mix any of these uh, crops. They were all um, grown separately in different rows. And we had some results that we were not really expecting. So uh, that these were all winter crops, in theory that if we planted them in um, May or June, and they wouldn't go to seed or flower or anything like that until the following year because they needed to experience a winter. However, um, and it might've just been due to like, the cooler, wetter weather that we had that year, but both the camelina and the canola did end up um, flowering and going to seed. Um, the idea was that we would, they would stay in this basal rosette stage and just make a good ground cover and they did do that for a while. Um, the camelina had a very good ground cover and suppressed weeds 
um, fairly well, but by mid-July, it had shot up a flower head and the basil leaves started to die, allowing sunlight to hit the soil. So then weed seeds started to sprout. So camelina was a, a bust for us. Um, the canola filled out very well. Um, there was almost no weeds that were able to um, grow through the canola. It just really outcompeted everything. However, it was growing too well and uh, just put out so many leaves that we actually had to mow it back four times over the whole growing season. And we mostly did this to because the leaves were getting so big that they were um, growing over the top of our strawberry plants and out competing them or shading them out and we couldn't have that. Um, so canola had a uh, great suppression of weeds, but it was very high maintenance. So that option probably won't work for a lot of people. However, the winter rye, um, it did what we thought it would and it, it didn't try and go to seed or anything. It stayed um, in a small couple inches high stage, made a nice ground cover, suppressed weeds very well for the most part. Um, so rye ended up being our best treatment in that study. Um, we've also used, started using crimson clover in between rows and that seems to have been working very well for us. Um, it does get kind of big, but it's not as dense and thick of a canopy as the canola was. So it doesn't shade out our primary crops, at least in our experience so far. Um, other than that, our biggest issue with living mulches is getting them ger to germinate and establish. You just have to be really on top of it with the timing it with the weather or even going out there with just an extra uh, putting in some extra labor and watering the um, seeds in to make sure that they get uh, established. And then once they are established, they can kind of fend for themselves. Uh, we don't irrigate them after that, and that hasn't been an issue for that. Um, we did the same rye, camelina, canola experiment at a farmer's place down in southern Minnesota, and he had very poor germination and... So they just never got established and we just kind of took over for those. Can you talk a little bit more about the timing? Are you, are you seeding your rows pretty much right after you're setting up your beds and transplant strawberries so you're not have to walk all of them right after you seed all ahead of time so they're established when you're putting strawberries in? So the way we've done it is um, we seed our living mulch after we um, get our beds formed and um, plants transplanted in. So that way they can just have, you know, a couple of weeks of no traffic on them. Right. And any, I know sometimes when the goal is to like produce a lot of biomass to outcompete weeds, people will sometimes even fertilize the cover crop a little bit. Is that something you've done or you just throw it in the ground and <laughs> hope it does well? Um, yeah, we did not fertilize any of our living mulches. Um, yeah, we just threw it on the ground and hoped for the best. Um, we did um, rake it in to make sure there's good um, seed to soil contact and all that. And most of our primary crops, we are um, fertigating. So all the fertilizers being applied directly to the plant root zone. Um, and so we haven't seen a lot of competition, in, at least nutrient wise, between the living mulch and the primary crop. So that has not been an issue. Um, so we did uh, look at the yields 
of the strawberry plants in these different, with these different living mulches. And for the most part, they were all very similar, except for the canola decreased the yields. And I think that's just because it was growing so much and we kept cutting it back and it was growing more and more. And yeah. Awesome. So I guess any thoughts moving forward, just kind of comparing your standard system with landscape fabric versus like the rye and crimson clover, these living rows that do pretty well. Do you think you're going to stick with that system? And is there anything people, any other stuff you think people should know if they're considering switching to that, if they're pretty much just doing either bare rows or landscape fabric now? Um, we're, well, we're definitely going to continue using rye and clover and experimenting with that and just see how it goes. Um, one thing I've just observed is that it's nice that the ground doesn't get nearly as compacted when it's got roots actively growing in there compared to, you know, when you're just um, stomping around on fabric or bare soil. Um, so that has been a nice benefit, so. Maybe Nate, could you recall or share some of the benefits to the soil with those different living mulch crops? Yeah, I can talk about that a little. Um, we only looked, tested soil results for a year, so I'm not too confident on any of these or how they would play out over a longer period of time. But um, we did find that the living mulches did increase the amount of organic matter in all of the treatments, which you would expect. Um, but in terms of nitrogen itself, we found that the canola actually added nitrogen to the soil, which we didn't expect to happen in just one year. And I was, I'm thinking that's just because it was constantly getting mowed down and the leaves were able to decompose faster um, in terms of, you know, you, the rye won't decompose until the next following year. And so there was a lot of nitrogen tied up in the plant itself, but that should be able to be available over the next, you know, one to five year period. So someone from Facebook is wondering, is all of your work in strawberries or have you done any of this work either with living rows or um, alternative mulches and other crops? And I think it might be worth explaining um, just the concept of day neutral strawberries and how what you're doing is different from a perennial strawberry grower. Well, all of our work has been pretty much done with the strawberries. That's where it started. But this last year, uh, as Nate mentioned the use of the crimson clover. We had a study uh, with uh, cauliflower and broccoli as a fall crop, and we used the, the crimson clover as the cover crop or living mulch in between the rows. As Nate mentioned, I mean, it was not competitive. It stayed low. I mean, uh, at the cool season, you know, it, would, it did quite well. Didn't require any mowing. Was not in competitive with the broccoli and cauliflower. So uh, we're wanting to look at that again. But yes, most of our work has been done with uh, strawberries. And can you just um, give a little bit of background on the day neutral strawberry system? Sure. The, uh, uh, we've been doing research with uh, uh, low tunnel day neutral strawberries since 2013. Uh, with, there was a uh, strawberry uh, geneticist who is down in Beltsville, Maryland that inspired us to try this system. She was, uh, had developed her own system of a low tunnel and when I talk about low tunnel, it's over the top of the crop, okay, um, stands about two to two and a half foot tall uh, with this system. Uh, as we've learned how to, uh, you know, use it, you create a raised bed with a bed shaper, 
to make a uh, raised bed that's approximately six inches tall in our area. We don't go any higher than that. Uh, we use a plastic mulch machine that goes back over that raised bed and puts down the wet on black plastic or what I was talking about, the Bio360, uh, to make a nice tight fit and put that over the top of the row. The, the drip tape is, uh, is installed at the same time you're uh, putting down the uh, plastic over the raised bed. And that we, then what we do is uh, put a system over the top after we've done planting uh, of a low tunnel system, which is plastic over some uh, galvanized uh, hoops uh, that are placed every five foot within the row. And uh, it's, a, it's a plastic that has uh, punched holes on the side. So if you do bring the low tunnel all the way down to the ground, it has some ventilation. Uh, during the heat of the summer, we leave it up on one side, we leave it up on the west side, and we pull it down on the east side, okay? And um, so uh, you tie it down on the ends. Uh, our plots were approximately, uh, approximately about 100 foot long. You tie it down on the ends, and then these elastic straps hold it over these galvanized uh, frames or structures that plastic is placed over. Um, a unique system that acts as like a miniature greenhouse. Um, we've, we've done it both ways without low tunnels and just growing the strawberries on a, a raised bed with wet on black plastic. And it just depends on the year and the location and whatnot. Uh, sometimes yields are comparable, but uh, um, the first year we did this with the low tunnels, we had a variety called Portola, which was just unbelievable off the charts with 38,000 pounds of strawberries per acre with that system. Uh, that uh, is some serious yields. Um, we have been uh, averaging since then about 17,000 pounds per acre with this system over the last uh, seven or eight years, which is very good. Uh, uh, June bearing systems in, in, in state of Minnesota are probably anywhere between eight and 12,000 pounds per acre. So we're almost double that with this system. All right. Thanks. So just a couple questions. One, really, I'm curious with your, with the work you've done with clover, with crimson clover. Clover is probably among vegetable growers, one of the most common plants to use for uh, between rows. And often people will, because it's a bit slow to start, people will use a nurse crop of like oats or winter rye. It sounds like you didn't do that. Did you have any issues with getting it started? Um, or was that just fine for you? Um we didn't have an issue getting it started. We, um, in the plantings we used it in, they were later in the season. So maybe that had um, something to do with it. I have in the past used uh, rye, winter rye and clover mix. And that has worked well. Um, the rye does seem to kind of suppress the clover a little bit. Um, but I'm sure if you played around with the ratios and just cut back the amount of rye you were planting for the amount of clover, you could work around that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, totally different topic. <laughs> One question we have here is, I think they're wondering about the organic status of the biodegradable mulch. Is that something either of you can talk, can speak to? Yes. The, the BIOS 360 is Omni approved, you know, and so there's a benefit there. Yep. Is it OMRI approved? I know sometimes you have to pull it out of the field for it to be OMRI approved. Are you able to leave it in the field? As I recall, I mean, we haven't worked with this product since 2018 or whatever. As I, as I recall, you were able to work it back into the field, you know, till it back into the soil. 
because it okay. was a, a, a corn, you know, starch based material. Okay. Yeah. I think some of these biodegradable mulches are more petroleum based and there is a requirement to pull them out of the field. So I would check with your organic certifier before you use them just to be totally sure and make sure you're using a product that is approved. Yep. That would be a good idea. Yes. Okay. So someone on Facebook is wondering, assuming you have a high performing biodegradable mulch, like say in the future, you find one that works really well. Are there any efforts being made on drip tape that can also decompose? (laughs) It's okay if you don't know the answer. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I have never heard of that. No. Yeah, that's a good question for me too. Um, do you do you want to talk about that a little bit? Do you just use like the disposable drip tape every year? Or do you have a system that you can reuse or any yeah, thoughts the, about that? The drip tape it, 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 with our plastic mulch machine, it's it, the, there are two lines that go down each row. Uh, it's automatically fed underneath whatever plastic you might be using. Uh, it's just flat drip tape uh, with an emitter. I think it's every eight or 12 inches, um, um, but there are many different brands out there, but, uh, um, but it is worked well for us, you know, for the most part of irrigating our plants with uh, the flat drip tape. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's all the questions we have in here for now. So if you have any final questions, please do put those in the Q and A or the chat. Um, and just while we give people a minute to ask any final questions, it, I think the two of you are continuing this work this summer, right? And maybe in the high tunnel, maybe with some peppers, if you want to talk about that and where people can, I guess, if they're curious to learn more, where they can follow that research. Yeah, I can talk about um, that. So we're going to be testing a paper mulch versus a plastic mulch in our high tunnel with um, bell peppers. And the paper mulch we're using is, um, the brand is WeedGuard Plus. Um, I know it is OMRI certified, I would think to leave in the field, but not positive on that. And um, it's a new version of their paper mulch they've made that supposedly um, is able to, it's just easier to work with to lay out without ripping and tearing. Um, So yeah, we're going to try that out and see how it compares to the plastic. And we're also going to use that paper mulch um, in strawberries this year too so great and do you know you'll probably share that just like on our fruit and vegetable newsletter right is there anywhere else people can follow up with that um i would say it would mostly just be on the app the fruit and vegetable news um otherwise our personal uh west central research and outreach center website if you just googled it you'd be able to find us okay great um Someone is asking what rates were used for between row growing mulch. It's what seeding rates, I think. Mm -hmm. So for rye, we did um, 60 pounds per acre, um, just following kind of general fall cover cropping guides. Um, The clover was 16 pounds an acre. And then I believe the canola and camelina were at 10 or 12 pounds an acre. Mike would like to know, are there any exciting cover crops you haven't tried yet, but plan to soon? I personally would like to experiment more with um, some, some of the larger grasses as a fall cover crop, not not as a living mulch, but uh, more of the sedan grass style. So, just because I have never worked with them. I 
just think it would be interesting to see how that plays out. I would be curious to see different clovers. Can you talk about why did you choose crimson clover? I think that's a fairly unconventional clover choice for rose. Um, I chose crimson clover because it's um, when I was in southern Minnesota at a research center there, it was um, that's what we used as our cover crop instead of uh, red clover, which is what a lot of other people were using, um, just because it'll die over the winter and you don't you don't have to worry about terminating it in the spring before you can do anything. So that was why I went with crimson clover here, just because I don't want to. We, we have enough going on in the spring. We don't need to worry about terminating <laughs> last year's cover crop. One other advantage too with the crimson clover is with strawberries, okay? There is an insect called the tarnished plant bug, okay? Which is always gonna be there, okay? And you normally have to spray for it because it, when the strawberries are flowering, it stings that flower and creates the misshapen fruit or the nubbins or cat face fruit as they're described. And uh, when I, the crimson clover was growing in these areas where we were trying it last year, I would go in while they were flowering and I would tap those flowers into a white dish and see, hey, is this got any tarnished plant bug in it? Is it, is it like this crop? And I never really found any, uh, any tarnished plant bug in any of that crimson clover, which really, really surprised me. So that's why we're going to move with the crimson clover into our new day neutral strawberry production system and trying these different mulches. So I think that is something exciting because I've been a strawberry researcher for years and you're always having to deal with uh, tarnished plant bug and it wasn't found in this particular cover crop. Okay. Um, and Mike, Mike's followed up on his question saying he was thinking of TEF. <laughs> and I think I, if you're really interested in other grasses, I know the folks in Iowa in Ajay Nair's lab are working with like teff and different millets. So that's something you can follow up with. I don't know if the two of you have any other, anything else to say about that? I'm not familiar with it. Me either. Okay. All right. Well, I think that is all of the questions that we have. So I'm going to do our formal wrap up. So thank you all for being here today. Uh, This show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, which is a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes and Midwest regions. And it's sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. So we do this every week. We hope you'll join us uh, as the season progresses. I think we're still confirming, but I think next week we're going to be talking about um, potato seed handling. So thank you both for being here. This was really great. It's fun to talk to you and learn some more about your work. And we can wrap up. So yeah, thanks again, Nate and Steve. I think I'm going to play this song to close out the episode. And if you're curious, it is a Radiohead cover. Ben Phillips and Ben Whirling wrote about biodegradable mulch. So we'll play that (laughs) as the outro. A black plastic mulch raised bed For a fast-growing summer it's non-recyclable That she bought from a salesman In a winter of best laid plans But it left
Sweet.